Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 544, for October 21st, 2023. Welcome back. And today we discuss that uh, great Louisiana Innovation, the drive-through daiquiri stand with uh, David Irving, who um, who invented it. And um, of course, and he has that. Alone, my God, yeah, I was just about to say that he and uh, Yus and um, oh, um, Dolph Williams, well, and the guy that uh, created the frozen daiquiri machine. Oh, Dolph Williams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, too, in some engineering area. I think. Right, and so about the time that the Williamses were inventing frozen daiquiris uh, and uh, creating the machine, he was coming through tech. He had six years a little older than me, um, and so he had the idea, uh, being down in Lafayette during a boom period. Of uh, well, why don't we just get a stand and fill it up with daiquiri machines and just sell them all for the same price? And um, you know, he really it wasn't just the idea of a, a stand, but the way that he, um, the way that he separated, the way that he uh, operated it. So you know, a daiquiri is a daiquiri, a daiquiri. You know, if it's a ten dollar for this, it's ten dollars for everything else of that size. So it's a real innovation and uh, just. Yeah, he he uh, he he kind of discovered something there that's spread across Louisiana and really around the world to some degree. But certainly, oh, there's a, a yeah. With the, uh, Even Rustin has a dive, drive to Zachary. The, the, the um, uh, frozen fruit drink, which is a non-alcoholic drink, that was yeah. a guy who who went to with me, and I don't know him, but I know. Yeah, when you and I went over there, they had that green apple that was well, uh, non-alcoholic. This is different from that, but this guy invented that. He went to school with my, with my friend, or the guy went to school with my friend Larry, the artist here in town, artist and photographer. And uh, that guy came through, and, and it, listen, he wound up selling it off to, like, maybe the Slurpee people or somebody, Southland Corporation or somebody. It's become, It's very successful. So I think he's out of it now, but he's a tech alum too. And all these are yep. you know, drinks. These are various kinds of frozen drinks that all of them are drinks. Right, right, varieties. Now for, uh, well, so we're excited about talking to David in a few minutes, but first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on October 13th, 1931, Lieutenant Governor Steer takes the oath <laughs> of office since Huey Long is now a senator. <laughs> you know, Stephen, people always talk about how uh, how Huey Long kind of played fast and loose with um, you know the legal system, but everybody around back then was doing it. You know they all are doing these kind of tricks to get ahead. Uh, you know I just swear myself in as it governor. Was so bad. I mean I go back to this. What we've said to a guest before. I mean, look, if he was so bad, how come the Bourbons that came before him didn't materially improve the lives of Louisiana, particularly poor Louisiana? Yeah. You see what I mean? well, they did not. They literally did not. You think how terrible Trump was? He didn't take a, you know, he didn't take an extra oath of office on the in power. I could totally, you know, if he'd read this bit of history, um, he could have totally tried that stunt. But um, you know, stunts 
Uh, that's what Louisiana is for. Uh, now for this week in New Orleans history, the SS John W. Draper World War II Liberty Ship was launched by the Delta Shipbuilding Company in New Orleans on October 21st, uh, 1944. And I'm not sure if that was like in the first one maybe. Um, well, is that the same guy that developed the Higgins boat? Is that the Higgins guy that was a shipmaker in New Orleans? Or I do not know. I know we had a bunch of shipbuilders <clears throat> down here back in the day. Cause, we need you know. to find out about that because that might be another... Another book think, or, or, or think, guest, you know. Think Avondale is all that's left. But it was, yeah, that'd make a good interview. Now for this week in Louisiana. Yeah, so this week in Louisiana, we highlight the LGBTQ Halloween in New Orleans. Halloween New Orleans is back for our 40th year with, a, with three amazing events packed full of unforgettable experiences. The Queen's Ball Nightmare in Wonderland. Mad Hatter's Tea Dance is the one in question. The city's uh, LGBTQ community is also out in full regalia for Halloween, and you can join in the fun at any time during the evening. Halloween New Orleans throws a weekend-long party every year, and the benefits go to Project Lazarus, a home in New Orleans for people living with AIDS. You'll find most of the action on Bourbon and St. Anne Streets in the heart of the quarter. Elaborate costumes, exciting galas, drinking, and dancing with friends are all hallmarks of this festive celebration. There is a website, and if you're interested, you can go to the website. The dates are October the 27th to the 29th of 2023. All right. Have you ever been in the quarter when they were holding all this shindig? Or you you know, um, a while back, Kerr and I went on Halloween Day, and it was fun, but, you know, not it certainly didn't quite measure up to uh, Mardi Gras. So, yeah, it's nice, but... Um, it, um, it, it, uh, New Orleans is quite capable of having parties that are even bigger. Let's put it that way. And that's for this week's postcard from New Orleans. I listened to the TBC Brass Band and Hazizzle at a Satchmo Fest at the Old Mint in New Orleans.
interview with David Irvin. All right. Uh, so I'm Bruce McGee, and I think Stephen's going to be joining us momentarily, and we're here today with uh, David Irvin. Is that how you say your name? Irvin, E-R-V-I-N. Irvin, yes, that's what I thought. And um, you are the uh, inventor of the drive-through daiquiri stand. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Because that's what well, you, you talk to people around the country and the world about the things they know about Louisiana, and it's like number one Mardi Gras, number two jazz, number three drive-through daiquiris. You're right up there. <laughs> well, uh, I was a, I was a Louisiana Tech student back in the day, and um, I was, uh, you know, very close to graduation in forestry there, and uh, I was kind of disillusioned with that occupation at the time. So I wanted to find something that, you know, that I wanted to do the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, I've been going to college too long to change my major, that kind of thing. So uh, believe it or not, I only liked eight hours of graduating when, when I decided to uh, resign from the university and pursue this uh, idea I had. And uh, it really came about with the with the folks out at Wilmart. They, um, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you know, they had started doing these frozen drinks out there while I was a student. And, uh, you know, a light bulb moment kind of happened with me when I saw that. Um, and at the time, I just finished a marketing course where we had uh, done a case study on uh, on Baskin Robbins, you know, why they have 31 flavors kind of thing. 
So I was kind of inspired to um, to try to do something, you know, with just frozen drinks and nothing else. I felt like anything else would kind of, you know, take away from the the, the brand image of what I was trying to project there. So anyway, uh, I, I spoke with uh, with Mr. Williams out there, and um, he was the kind of guy that, uh, you know, would, would would take advantage of any financial opportunity that came around and and he and i talked about me having a you know opening my own store and uh now is this for Dolph's dad yeah uh uh-huh red williams they call him but yeah 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 yeah. so anyway he and i talked and um uh he he was uh amateur about you know helping me get started so he agreed to to uh lease the equipment to me so that was the first big break I had because the equipment was was really uh you know a huge financial burden, especially you know in, in my current situation as a college kid you know so so you know I had to just so people know like at the time if there was i mean most frozen drinks were made with a blender if there was a a, a machine in the uh bar or restaurant. Maybe it had one, maybe two, and you're ordering a whole wall full of these things, these, uh, um, um, these uh, uh, machines. Yeah, uh, he, he, you know, they had started, um, you know, you, you know, gradually adding on to their variety, and and I was watching this as a student. You know, they started out with two machines, and then they. You know, ended up, you know, with like a little, you know, five or six, and and uh, I was looking at that as a uh, as focusing just on the frozen drinks as a business and nothing else, you know. So so anyway, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I talked with uh, the Williamses and and I tried to figure out how to maximize the profit potential of that concept. And I thought about it, and, you know, it takes a long time to drink a frozen drink. So I discounted the idea of having a walk-in type business, you know, because a walk-in type bar really has to survive on repeat business, repeat sales. And it right. takes too long, like I said, to drink a daiquiri. You'd, you know, you'd have customers sitting in your bar, you know, you know, sometimes maybe an hour just to drink one drink. So. Right. Right. I, I I thought that a drive-through would be a, a more appropriate because you could serve more customers. And, yeah, the thing and, about a frozen drink, you don't just gulp it down. You have to sip on it because um, you give yourself brain freeze. So uh, you're talking an investment. Even like Sunday, I went to Satchmo Fest. I got a one quart <laughs> frozen beverage on my way in. And uh, it lasted a good hour, hour and a half in the 100 or 95 degree heat. So, uh, yeah. Um, it, it, and so they take time to drink. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, nowadays they're even larger than that. Some of them, you know, are like 64 ounces. It's crazy, you know. But, but um, I just felt like the business model with a drive-through, would maximize the profit potential. It would minimize the amount of upfront cost, and it would reduce the amount of employees I would need. And there was just so many positives with it that that I decided that was the way to go with it. 
But the big problem was the legality of it. I didn't know <laughs> if it would be legal or not. So, right. so, so I started, you know, pulling all of my fraternity friends and all of, you know, even some of my professors at Tech and, and most people said that I was an idiot to even think of something like that. Seriously, that, that it, it, it just had to be illegal. It was just too bizarre not to be. So, <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, I was, uh, determined to, to get to the bottom of it. So I ended up, uh, driving to Lafayette, the, the city I decided to open up in. And I got, uh, I went into the city hall and, uh, asked the clerk behind the desk to give me a copy of Every law pertaining to the sale of alcoholic beverage in a retail environment. Oh, this was before the internet, right? You couldn't just look that crap up on online. No, there wasn't any internet back then. Right. Yeah. There wasn't even there wasn't even home computers back then. Mm-mm. So for our kids who don't remember the olden days, uh, yeah, the, no internet, very few computers in houses. You know, yeah. There weren't any computers in that. No, uh, I took the science parts at Tech, and and the computer cover you know, it took the whole bottom floor of Wiley Tower. Yes, they did, brother. I went there in '92 and uh, saw the guy that was running it. He was so proud. He said, "We just got a new mainframe," and I went in to look at it. Just little box, you know, like a mini fridge in your dorm room. And uh, but in the old days, that filled up the whole basement. The computer did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so so anyway, like you said, there wasn't, you know, I, I, I physically went to um, to Lafayette, and, and like I said, the, the uh, clerk looked at me like the biggest idiot she'd ever seen in her life just standing in front of her, because I'm sure she's never had anyone ask her a question like that. So she tried to brush me off because it was a lot of work to print all those laws out, you know, but I was persistent, you know. I said I'd driven all the way from rusting down here for this and I'll, I'll stay all day and come back tomorrow if I have to. So anyway, she ended up printing them all for me. And, um, uh, the following day I went to, uh, Baton Rouge and, 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 and made the same request there with the alcohol, uh, alcohol and beverage people. And they gave me all of the, uh, laws as well. So, so I had reams of, of legal material now. So, <laughs> So so I, I got back to Ruston and I started reading these laws and I spent months reading them and I couldn't find anywhere that said that my idea was illegal. And I couldn't afford an attorney, you know, to, to research all this. So I did myself. But anyway, I finally reached the conclusion that the only way I'd ever know would be just to do it and see what happens. Right, right. And you know, I, I told my, my my parents if I'm if I make it uh, 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 the first week without being arrested, it's legal. And uh, you're from Lafayette originally. Do I understand you're from Tallulah? Yeah. Uh-huh. But North Louisiana is a lot drier than South Louisiana, so and also Lafayette's a lot bigger, so it was probably a better uh, strategy to uh, move off down there, but. Boy, you must have felt really alone that far from us. That's for people that don't know. They're like on opposite ends of the state, you know, northeast and southwest, or south central. But yeah, it's a long trip. 
Yeah, I've been working offshore in the in, in the in the summers, and on my way to, to back home to Ruston on my weeks off, I would drive through Lafayette, and, and it was just a serious party town in those days. It, it was like every day was like Mardi Gras down there. Auburn. <laughs> Louisiana was rolling in money, man. Yeah, yeah, the oil industry was really booming, and and every, every everybody was just in a festive. I mean, it was just it was just it was just a carnival atmosphere in Lafayette in those days, and um, I just really didn't think that I, I was really afraid that my business would go unnoticed. There was so much activity down there at the time, you know. So. Uh, but anyway, it, it was. I, I, I went through a lot of phases of denial, self denial of the idea and that kind of thing. You know, I remember, I remember talking to some of the bar owners in Lafayette, and they, you know, just laughed at the idea of me not wanting to start to sell beer. You know, and and, right. and everything that made their business successful, I eliminated. You know, right. I. Out of my idea, so I I was I doing. Exactly. You know, most most restaurants have a bunch of stuff. Canes has those little chicken strips. That's all they sell. Uh, but people line up to the street to get those chicken strips. So that that was your model: is we're going to do one thing, we're going to do it really better than anybody else and quicker. Yeah, and and and, and I think I, I I mentioned this to Dolph Williams. Uh, he and I are, are still good friends. I really think the success that I had initially was really because of the quality of the of, of the drinks his mother created. Right, right. I mean, they they were really really good drinks. It's um, it it it, it kind of took the public by surprise. They're driving up to my place, you know, it looks like a storage building with a drive-through window, and they're they're receiving a a a, a five-star quality. You know, frozen cocktail. They can't get anywhere else in town. Right. So, so you know, everybody assumed it would be you know inferior because the building looked inferior. <laughs> well, in uh, the old price quality relationship. Yeah, let's let Stephen get in on the action. Hey, Steve. Yeah, that's the old price quality kind of fallacy, really. That if it looks you know, crappy outside, then the then the product has got to be crappy too. Right. <laughs> well, really, favorite, I mean, when it winds up in your case that you were, you know, turning out a good product. My favorite yeah. uh, restaurants are the dives that have really great food. You know, they aren't wasting it on chandeliers, putting it all into that, whatever it is they're fixing. Oh, yeah, we've got a place like that right here in Ruston that, you know, the, the barbecue place that looks, it, I mean, it's not ugly, but it's just, it's plain looking, you know, but you go inside and it's the best barbecue in this area, probably until you get the truth for it. So, uh, yeah, so what was, we'll talk about first the public reaction and second, the reaction of the uh, establishment, because they were very different. Well, the the uh, the, the uh, public in Lafayette, when I, um, <clears throat> when, 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 when I, it all happened when I, when I had the, the, the uh, signage put up, says Daiquiri Factory. And, and, uh, when, when the building. You were the one that named them Daiquiris because those machines could make several kinds of drinks. You got the 
frozen margarita, you got the frozen daiquiri, but you aren't going to have a big sign with all that. You just said these are all daiquiris, and uh, that kind of stuck. Well, um, I, I didn't realize this until uh, actually a couple of months ago. Uh, I, I did an interview with the Smithsonian, and the writer explained to me that by me branding all of my products as daiquiris, that I, in effect, changed the American lexicon of what a daiquiri is now, he said. Right. So, so before me, a daiquiri was, you know, lime juice, sugar, rum, and and sometimes fruit, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, the things, I only had one daiquiri in my entire bar, a strawberry daiquiri. The rest <laughs> of them were just frozen cocktails. The, a, few years, a few years ago, I went into a restaurant and ordered a daiquiri, and they sent up this drink with cubes of ice, you know, and I'm like, what is this? It's not daiquiri. So, yeah, you <laughs> um, so, uh, I read that uh, the first day, people didn't really notice your stand. It's just a little shack, you know, and uh, people didn't really notice. And then that night, the lights came on. And uh, what happened then? Oh, Jesus. It was, uh, uh, I, I'd been, you know, nervous about the whole thing and all. And uh, I, originally, I wanted to be closer to the university because I really felt that that was the, the, the core market which would be similar to what Wilmart had, right? So, right. But, right, but, but I did, there, there was no real estate available in that area. And I was, and I was determined to do a freestanding building like right. what I did. So I was forced to take this piece of property. Um, and, and I was, I was afraid because it was a different demographic there. There were, you know, older, older clientele there. I was away from the college. So when I opened the very first day, nobody came, drove in. I had all my machines going. I was sitting in the store looking out the window. Oh, man. Nobody came in all day, and I was scared to death. I said, boy, I've really made a mistake. So anyway, when it got that, it, when, when the evening came down and I started seeing lights flickering on the street in front of me, I flicked on the lights. And and they just swarmed in like 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 like, like flies. They just <laughs> but but no one knew to 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 drive through or anything. They just filled the the the, uh, the, the light up cars, and they were just wandering through the, the the yard, looking at me through the windows. So I had to go out in there, <laughs> back in their cars, and form a line and drive and do the drive through. You know, had the little menu sign in the back. You know, just like the fast food places, and um, mm -hmm. they all had, and and um, uh, every one of them drove through this sinister look on their face, like they were doing something illegal, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and 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 you know, I, I had I, and I had this little speech all lined up that that would give them assurances that we were legal, but honestly, I didn't know either, really. <laughs> Well, really, it hadn't been decided whether it was legal or not. You had to do it, and then it had to go through the process, legislation, through the city council, and go to the courts and all that, right? But before we get to the legal part, by the next day, the word had gotten out, right? And they were there early and often. Oh, God, yeah. It was, uh, uh, I, was, I, I was opening the store at 8 o'clock every morning, and... Uh, 
the uh, line would start forming at 6.30. Oh, my God. <laughs> and by the time I got there, uh, there would be 60, 70 people in line already before I got to the store. Or they would go down the street, right? What, didn't it make, uh... Yeah, in both directions. They were blocking the uh, – it was the main thoroughfare in Lafayette in those days, right in front of my store. And uh, I, I, I tried to get the city to put a red light there, but they wouldn't do it. So we had all kinds of wrecks in front of the store just from the, you know. But anyway, um, it went on like that for from that from, from from the second day on. It never stopped. Every every moment the store was open, there was somebody at the window ordering a drink, and it was nonstop. And it was exciting at first, but after a few weeks of that, it just really wore me down. You know, it's the, the only day I had off was Sunday because of a blue law, but but it killed me. And uh, the original loan that I had uh, uh, to start the business was retired within the first three weeks. Wow. Tell us that story. Didn't you pick your uh, loan out back home somewhere? Yeah. Um, well, I started out uh, – uh, uh, convincing one of my fraternity brothers to to come in as a financial partner, and uh, so he, he he agreed to do that and everything. So so I um, uh, he 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 agreed to do that with the stipulation that he was not going to give me living expenses, you know, to start the business. So I needed to make money really fast, you know, so I'd have money to move to, so I can move to Lafayette. So I did a garage sale in uh, in in Tallulah, and uh, I put all of the things that I'd learned at Tech and all these business courses in, in, in into a microcosm of a garage sale. You know, the marketing, the every, everything, and it was incredibly successful. So that was the seed money to move down there. So anyway, after I did that, the my my partner. Uh, uh, bailed out on me, you know, at the last minute. He, you know, he said his family, you know, was, was, you know, not on board with that idea. Can you imagine how much money he'd have if he'd kept that money in there, you know, like getting it on Microsoft at the beginning or uh, Apple, you know, uh, computers? Oh, yeah, it, it was. And looking back on it, 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 it I made so many mistakes, but the success was so great that it overshadowed it. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, financial mistakes that I made would have tanked any any other type of business. But you know, it, it was it, it was it was it was just so instantaneous. Every day it was just it was just it was bizarre. It really, I mean, it was. I was I, I, at one point. I just I was numb to it all, you know. I mean, you go home and and you, you you've got these boxes of cash that you're hiding in your closets and everything. <laughs> you you know, just don't have time <laughs> to go to the bank. Yeah, you know, it was just it was it was it, it was really bizarre. Looking back on it, I was 25 years old. The most money I'd ever made in my life was working offshore at the time was like four or five hundred dollars. And now here I am opening a business and I'm making that amount in a few hours, you know? Right, right. It, 
just completely, completely blew me away. I had no idea. Uh, tell our listeners about you know, uh, going to see your banker after that first month and what he thought you were there to do and then what really happened. Well, my, as I mentioned earlier, my, my, my parents had co-signed the loan for me. And uh, my dad uh, had had just, you know, had just made a call. Uh, I was about about two and a half weeks into the business. You know, my, my dad just called. And he just kind of, kind of mentioned that my first payment on my loan was going to be up in like a week or two. And would I be able to take care of it? And I was like, yeah, I think so. You know, I believe I can handle that. And then after we hung up, I got to thinking about it. I said, well, you know, I, I, I might as well just pay the thing off, and, and you know, if I if I can, save you a drive every month, right? <laughs> yeah, I really didn't know if I could or not. So that night, uh, when I got home, I started counting all the cash I had not deposited, and and uh, I said, well, shoot, I can just pay the whole thing off. So I made arrangements that following uh, uh, Sunday to drive to. That, that, that Sunday night to drive so I could be in Toulouse when the bank opened at, at nine o'clock and I walked in there with a, with a brown paper bag with, with the full loan amount in it. And, uh, my banker thought that I had, I was a week early. I didn't even had the first, you know, first payment wasn't due on my loan yet. So he assumed that I was there early, you know, to try to get an extension. So, he went into this long monologue about how difficult it is for first-time entrepreneurs, you know, you know, with the financial part of it. And he agreed to to put the first payment on the on the end of the loan to give me a little breathing room. And I looked at him. I said, "Well, I didn't come here for an extension. I came here to pay it off." And I reached down. I set that bag on his desk, and his his face just turned total total white. He couldn't believe it. This is a bag of fives and tens. And <laughs> yeah, it was, was, you know, just whatever I had. But that was You crap. felt like a bag man for the mob, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know, when you're, when you're talking fives, tens, and twenties, it looks like a lot more than it is, you know. <laughs> well, I know. I'm sure that's the one time that happened with this guy, his whole career. That just that's, uh, unheard of. And he was rather stunned, wasn't he? Oh, he was. He he he, he had a he 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 personally owned a convenience store in Tallulah, and uh, he was all about putting putting machines in his convenience store, you know. So <laughs> yeah, but, but like the money. That's right. They uh, they got a yeah. for it. So tell us about the reaction of the uh, Lafayette and the the state um, uh, authorities when they saw all this going on? Well, at first they discounted it as a fad. Um, the mayor and, and, and a lot of public officials were well, just kind of laughing it off like, uh, you know, there, there's no way this, you know, this kid that's sitting in the middle of a of, of a lot in a, in, in a storage building is going to be any kind of a problem, you know. But as things, things you know, started unfolding, we you know we started creating you know traffic jams on the major thoroughfare in Lafayette, and uh, they started getting a lot of uh, negative uh, uh, publicity from surrounding states, and it went it went national. Um, 
uh, every day I went to work, there would be some type of reporter there or some from somewhere wanting to do an interview kind of thing. And, uh, right. yeah. And, and one day, uh, 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 a writer from AP showed up and did a, did an interview with me. And later that day, uh, UPI, uh, a writer showed up and boy, after that, it was, it was a national story, you know? Right, so, right. yeah. So the, uh, the uh, city officials were, were, you know, inundated with all these negativity from all over the nation. How can, uh, uh, you know, a city allow such a, a decadent business to survive, you know? And I was getting hate mail from all these anti-alcohol groups all over the country. And, and plus, I, well, I was getting positive stuff, too, from entrepreneurs, <laughs> you know, well, wanting mean, to uh, jump really? in the... Any kind of drink <clears throat> package liquor store, you're going to have to drive home with it, you know, and this is the same thing. I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, I guess they could. Well, start it, early, it, always, it always brings out the hypocrite crowd, too. Yeah. You know, I never uh, all these people, a lot of them have alcohol in their homes or their families drink it. But they're oh, they're all up in arms and they get this. They sort of collect around themselves this, this sense of moral outrage about alcohol sales. And that kind of comes with it. Ruston yeah. is notorious for that, so that kind of hypocrisy. Did a cop show up one day and give you a summons? Like, how did it work? Um, well, the sheriff's department, uh, uh, the sheriff sent, sent his deputies over to to uh, try to find a way to, to shut me down. And they went through all my all, all my uh, uh, licenses and everything. And uh, and uh, they couldn't find anything, so so you know he ordered me into his office the next day, you know, to uh, to discuss my business, and and I really think that we got off on the wrong foot because he felt like I should have, you know, spoken to him before I opened the business. All right, 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 right. I, I didn't give him that courtesy, but you know, in my mind, you know. In those days, I thought Lafayette was a huge metropolitan city, you know, and I, right, I really right. didn't a sheriff would have any interest in an upstart like me and, and, and me barging in a guy's office, you know, I thought would would be uncourteous, really, you know. So, I, I'm, so, so anyway, we kind of butted heads there at the, at the beginning. And uh, I mean, you grew up in Tallulah. I grew up in Ruston, just a few miles away, and we spent our whole childhood trying to stay out of the sheriff's office. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but, you know, the difference is, you know, you grow up in a city, you know a lot of people. I was in a city I didn't know anybody. Right. You know, I had no relatives there, no no connections. I, I might as well have been in Los Angeles or somewhere. I didn't know anybody. Right. I, I didn't have anybody to call to ask, or I didn't know any attorneys. I didn't know anybody. I was just there by myself, and I was just in a position where I was having to be really creative and, mm -hmm. and think speed a lot because every day something was happening. One day, you know, uh, there's a, a Lafayette Police Department unit parked right outside my drive-through window uh, 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 exit. That's giving sobriety tests to my customers every day, you know, and you know, of course, that's going to really hamper business. So, 
I was thinking about, you know, what can I do to get rid of this guy? You know, he's he's out there killing my business. And I thought about, well, you know, if I file a harassment lawsuit, it's not going to really go anywhere because technically what he's doing is not illegal, you know. So the more I thought about it, well, he has to have just cause to do that. So in order to to, uh, get rid of the just cause, he, he, you know, as long as it is, is, is everybody he pulls over has an alcoholic beverage, then he's in, he's within the law. So, so I put in frozen lemonade, which took away, you know, that, that, that factor. So now there was a question what everybody that drove through my place either had a, a lemonade or, 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 or frozen drink. So, so he had to leave. You know, he. <laughs> you know, there are stores that'll have a machine that's without alcohol, like a, a, a alcohol-free uh, strawberry daiquiri that they sell the kids. So, because you know, your mom and dad get this beautiful-looking drink, and the kid needs something. So, yeah, that that is a thing even now that you find some of these machines with out alcohol uh, and really delicious beverages. But, I mean, everything I did was new ground. I didn't have, you know, that there wasn't any precedent for anything I was doing, you know. So they didn't really know, you know, if their enforcement were within the law or not, but they kept pressing it. And the thing that worked in my favor more than anything that, that I didn't realize at the time was the the amount of time I spent studying these laws, I was almost like an attorney. I mean, I really, I could rattle off. You know, state law, uh, Lafayette city law, parish law. Yeah, I'm, and and when these news cameras would would focus on me and ask me a question, I would recite the law just like an attorney. So everybody thought that I had some high powered attorney that was telling, that was advising me. You know, but I didn't. That was just me. You know, the whole time, it was just don't mess with a tackle alarm. <laughs> and then they don't tried to. I think the next step was uh, passing a law against open containers. Why don't you talk about the law and then your response to it? Well, they they uh, they were trying to figure you know figure a way to legally get rid of me and uh, and and the thing is uh, um, what what I didn't realize about the concept was that that by by nature by the nature of the the product itself, it insulated me from competition in that a bar typically makes their profit on uh, repeat sales, fast repeat sales. And, you know, when a bar is packed with 30 or 40 people, you know, they're relying on those people to, and if they, if they put a frozen drink machine in their bar, that would destroy their whole, their whole bar, bar business. So it's down to drinking too much. So they couldn't compete with me, even if they bought the machines. See, and I didn't realize it until after the fact. But anyway, well, you I, probably I, had repeat business, but it was in the form of every day or every week. Uh, Friday, I'm going to enjoy a, a daiquiri uh, at the end of the week, and so you're seeing the same people, just not you know in there for hours and hours. Right. So, 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 so anyway, the city, you know, they came up with the idea of. Of, of passing an open container law that would get rid of me. All right, so 
Um, but, you know, they were vehement about, about you know, in these press conferences. It had nothing to do with the Dacry factory, they, they were telling people. Nothing to do with me at all. And and um, so anyway, they passed the, the ordinance, and, and, and it was a big celebration. They were all, you know, excited that, you know, they'd passed this thing, and it was going to go in effect in 30 days or something like that. So I was trying to figure out uh, how can I comply with the new ordinance, you know. And so I, I sent certified letters to the city council members and the mayor and the chief of police uh, requesting what what they would recommend that I do to be in compliance. And, of course, none of them responded, and I made it known on, in the media. Every Like I said, every day I'd go to work, there'd be all these reporters and, and I'm standing in front of three cameras going, I've asked them what the law is and how I can comply. And they're not going to, you know, they're not willing to tell me what a sealed container is. So so, so in, in doing that, I created sort of a, a David and Goliath, you know, kind of a, a, a dynamic, you know. A little guy gets the city hall kind of syndrome there. And uh, and the public started, you know, gravitating toward toward me because I was the underdog. And the well, didn't you announce that you would show your response to the ordinance the day it went into effect? I mean, build up a little, uh, let it yeah. look like a carnival or a circus or something. Yeah, well, uh, I was trying to figure, you know, I, I was trying to arrive at a, a good solution for our steel container. And and uh, as it turned out, my, my college roommate's mother came up with an idea. She said, just put Scott's tape over the top of it and, and, and see what happens, you know, because they're going to question anything you do anyway. So right. if they're not going to tell you, you know, just, just go ahead and do it. So, so that's what I decided to do. And, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't reveal that, you know, I was going to wait until the very millisecond to, 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 to reveal it. The, the day of the orders is when I was going to reveal it. And, and after I had gone through that, um, it was, it was, it was learned that my property was about 12 feet out of the city limits of Lafayette. Oh, wow. So that, that made the store, you know, uh, 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 immune from the new ordinance. So then it had to do it through the uh, through the parish rather than through the city if they wanted to do anything. Right, but but you know the parish hadn't had there was no laws against anything like in the parish. Right. So, <laughs> so way that made the city another laughing stock in front of you know the public and everything. You know we you know we were you know we you know the underdogs prevailed again, so to speak. You know kind of thing, and. Um, Anyway, after that, you know, that was a news item. You know, it's blown up all over the nation, actually. Well, and, and when uh, something is as popular with the citizens as the uh, drive-through daiquiri, it makes it really hard for the authorities to be too much of a grinch. You know, they they may want to do something, but they like being reelected. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, but but it was. Uh, it, you know, there, there, there was, uh, you know, it, it really got to be a huge national story. We were featured on Paul Harvey a couple of times. And, um, uh, like I said, when, 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 when the, uh, UPI and AP 
uh, uh, Wirelines picked it up. It was it was published all over the United States. We even had coverage in some foreign countries. Um, I, I was interviewed for a lot of magazines in Europe. Uh, it was crazy. Every day I went to work, it was it was it was somebody there wanting to, want, want, wanting a, a, an exclusive kind of thing. But anyway, <laughs> the wheels should have put you on the payroll for all the machines you sold because. Uh, you know, putting their name out there and uh, their machines and uh, yeah, and uh, it didn't get quite the attention when they did that up in Ruston. A, it wasn't drive through, but B, it's a lot smaller. I mean, Wilmar, you've been there, right? There's nothing there. That, yeah. They aren't going to come out nearly as much as they will in Lafayette. So uh, it's kind of perfect from a publicity angle. Right. Well, well the, the Wilmar model uh, was good for where they were. You know, because those students at Tech weren't in a hurry. You know, there was nothing else to do anyway. So, you know, you make that long pilgrimage out there, and you, you know, you wait in line. It was in a smart. Well, they put it in a smart place. It was right, almost on the Jackson Lincoln Parish line. Yeah, if you right. go down Chatham Highway, it was way down. I mean, right there's a road. In fact, I think it's Tennessee Avenue in South Ruston. But anyway. You get way out on the east side of that road, and it becomes a state highway. And that road also becomes the border between Jackson and Lincoln Parish. And so right there on the south side of that road was Wilmart. And yep. they banked with my mom's bank. So my mom knew the people pretty well. <laughs> and they, they figured out, the students figured out. I, I mentioned this when we interviewed Dolph for the show, and he had seen all this stuff, and they would laugh about it. It was just hysterical. But they would students uh, in their big Baptist and Methodist families who were, you know, anti-alcohol would go down there to, to buy their, you know, drinks. And they figured out a way to write the word Wilmart where it looked sort of like Walmart. Yeah. On a check. <laughs> so they would make out a check for something that looked kind of like Walmart, but it was really Wilmart. And Dolph knew about all. I mean, he thought this was pretty funny. So my mom, they would see this in the bank. And every time they'd see one of those checks to be cashed, They'd laugh their heads off. I mean, they thought it was hysterical. <laughs> but that was good. Baptist and Methodist, North Louisiana, you know, that was real anti-alcohol, or at least, yeah. and again, that, that was more so in the small towns like Ruston and Tallulah, because Shreveport wasn't like that, and Bozier wasn't really like that, nor, nor was Monroe. Those three bigger towns were not like that. And yeah. Wilmart was, I think, like six or seven miles from uh, the edge of Ruston, which is probably the closest alcohol. And that wasn't by accident. I, um, we talked to Dolph a couple of years ago, and uh, he is a character. Um, and he was talking about, uh, well, in 1974, Louisiana adopted a new constitution. And for a minute, everywhere in the state was, uh, you know, you could have alcohol, but they did have a local option. And my dad, the uh, pastor of the biggest church in town, Temple Baptist Church, he sprang into action. And I remember he sending me out with one of my best friend's dad, <laughs> knock on doors and collect uh, collect signatures to uh, to vote to uh, make Ruston dry again. Uh, I remember a day or two before uh, this guy was going through all the neighborhoods, had one of these old-fashioned uh, loudspeakers on his uh, car saying, vote yes, 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 but the Baptist got it, man. So uh, Ruston was dry again, and, and the Williamses, I believe, were somewhere like <clears throat> Sabine Parish that also went dry. Yeah, it was West, it was West Louisiana, I think. You know. Yeah, they started looking at maps for 
wet spots near dry spots. And that was where they got Wilmart was, uh, this is right inside uh, Jackson Parish, but Ruston's pretty far south in Lincoln Parish. So it'll be a easy drive or well, it never was an easy drive. That thing was like a roller coaster. Um, yeah. And so they opened up the package liquor, wasn't it package liquor to start with? Yeah, it was packaged liquor, and uh, it, it, it it seemed like uh, uh, anything anybody ever asked for, you know, they would eventually put it in there, you know, in their <laughs> store. So, so you know, it ended up being a convenience store. They had barbecue going in there. They had um, they got a uh, venue like a, a, like you could dance and or have wedding receptions or stuff. Eventually, like I remember going, you know, it was just out in the middle of the country, and here's this big barn looking thing uh <laughs> they opened it up for parties it was pretty good you know it was an operation and like steven said they they were the williamses and they chose the name wilmart because walmart was becoming a big thing right about then oh i i, I never knew that till till now yeah oh there 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 was a guy who worked uh he was a basically a bouncer down there this is a funny wild story and uh my aunt i'm sorry my mom said something about uh my uh my great nephew is working down there or something to that effect and and uh she asked the guy if he knew my cousin uh, my cousin's son and, and he said yeah and 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 the story was that he was telling his grandma who was my mom's arch fundamentalist sister older sister she was a real fanatic over in Shreveport, and uh, telling telling the aunt, my aunt, his grandmother, that quote he's working at a restaurant, and this guy almost doubled over with laughter. <laughs> he's working here at Wilmart, and I think he was working too as a bouncer, but he was about a freshman or so at Tech when I was a senior, and I mean this guy was just doubled over with laughter at the at the thought, you know. Hey, they uh, had barbecue. Well, they, but, but I mean they, they they would tell their families, you know these stories like this to again to dodge some of the the flack from the parents but uh according to or the, the lore, in his case the grandparent of my aunt but according to the lore um ms williams had bought some daiquiri mix and it was not selling not selling nobody wanted it nobody wanted it so finally one day she threw it in with some ice into a blender and uh invented the you know the frozen daiquiri um, and then it just, like Dolph said, he uh, went to work for his folks. He was a, also a tech student. And by the way, uh, the reason that we got a hold of you, uh, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day. Our friend Leslie Berry uh, was talking about uh, cold foods you could eat in the summer. And she's in Lafayette. And I said, didn't they invent the uh, frozen daiquiri right there in Lafayette? You're forgetting the best thing there is. And um and so I got to looking it up, and I saw just a short article, and it said you had been a forestry student. I said, oh, and a little light went off, because every forestry person I've ever met in the state of Louisiana was a graduate of tech, or, you know. And uh, so if you were at tech, that would explain how you knew that there was such a thing as frozen daiquiris way down there in Lafayette. So that's when I went down the rabbit hole with this. So, so yeah. Um, so you you would go out to Wilmart, I guess, uh, with friends, and um, a lot of it was pick up and bring back. But couldn't you hang around out there too? Like they had a regular bar. 
Well, no, not not that. That they had a walk up little 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 bar that they just kind of kind kind of threw together there, right right at the door when you first walked in. And uh, you know, I, I was looking at their operation. There there was a lot of things that I liked about it, but you know, they had some things that I thought you know could be improved. That you know, for instance, um, every drink was a different price. Hmm. Like right. for instance, a, a small pina colada may cost more than say a, a small strawberry daiquiri or something. So they had, um, like for instance, if if they had a menu of say eight flavors, that would populate a menu board with 24 different prices. Right. right. So I streamlined all those prices hmm. and right. I got everything but, you know, the daiquiris. Really, I was influenced by the marketing courses at Tech. I mean, um, one of the few classes I actually paid attention in, I think, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, the the guy at the time was Dr. Malad. He's probably deceased by now, I'm sure. But but uh, you know, he 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 had brought this case study to class uh, about Baskin Robbins. He said, you know, why would a, a person that's buying vanilla ice cream drive past 15 places that sell vanilla? To go to Baskin Robbins to buy vanilla, you know, right? And it's all—it's all about their branding, their brand image, and and all that kind of thing. And it, so when I came up with this this idea to do these daiquiri machines, uh, I, I wanted to start with no less than fifteen, and and uh, the machines were a huge expense. But I had they ever sold fifteen at once before? Like, were you the first guy to say, "I need a whole wall full of these things"? Well, that's what I told Mr. Williams, and he said, "Sure, you know." <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know how many machine, how many flavors Wilmart had at the time, but but I, I wanted to do at least fifteen, and um, and that's what I started with, and uh, it, it 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 really, you know, uh, almost sold itself. I mean, right. Uh, like I said, after day one, it was it was it was uh, amazing, you know, and uh, yeah. And when we talked to Doff, he said, um, you know, at first they're doing it the traditional way. They get the blender and they put the ice in, stuff in, blend it. And as you pointed out in some of the articles, that takes a long time to do that. You know, this is a mixed drink that takes a lot of time and energy on the part of your bartender. And so, um, and also. Well, doesn't it take he, some engineering in, or chemical in, um, <clears throat> ingenuity, too, in the sense of, of, of the properties of alcohol? Don't they kind of mitigate against the freezing or something or other, or Absolutely. I, seem to, I seem to remember Dolph telling us something like that. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I don't know what temperature alcohol freezes at, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's way, way, way lower than water. So really, yeah, yeah. In the it's, not like, it's not like freezing a seven up or Dr. Pepper or something like no. that. Yeah. People keep vodka in the freezer and it's, you know, it doesn't freeze. So anyway, he, uh, it was also the machines were tearing up because uh, they were being used so much, and he was going to the Walmart every week or two and binding their heaviest duty uh, blenders and bringing them back. And you know they break in a couple of weeks. So he started looking around. He's a tech engineering student, and he found some models. Uh, you know, basically similar to an icy machine. And I think you said there was. A machine they made in Italy, and 
So he started reverse engineering it because he wanted a machine that never ran out. Because icy machine, if you're the third person back, you get this like, you know, they're out of the coke because uh, they use up all the frozen coke, uh, coke icy, and so you have to wait 20, 30 minutes for it to refreeze. It's this really yucky thing. So he wanted his machine never to run out. And that was something that worked really well for you because you needed to move people <clears throat> there fast and you didn't need to spend a lot of time, um, you know, messing around with blenders and stuff. Let me get back to the, 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 the point you'd asked me earlier about the, the, uh, the, the uh, city and so forth. So yeah. anyway, um, uh, after, I had gotten past the what I thought would be a, a sealed container. Um, the the uh, word around around town was that we were going to go out of business when this ordinance went into effect. <laughs> so, and and so, so I was trying to think of a way to ensure that we would have a good turnout the day the ordinance went into effect. So I decided to have a grand opening that day. <laughs> so. So, um, so, so, so anyway, you know, that way, you know, everybody would know that we're here to stay. So I felt like the way to advertise that would be radio and, and I needed to go in, I felt, and, and personally voice, you know, the, the advertisement, but I didn't really know how to write a good 30 second ad. So. I called a, a friend of mine up that, that, that had previously worked in radio, who was now one of my liquor salesmen. So he had a, a vested interest. So I called him out to my office, and um, he walked in the office. I'll never forget it. And he walked in my little kitchen I had there and made me the strongest drink I think I've ever had in my life, brought it in my office <laughs> and told me to drink it. So I sat, by, I sat behind my desk. And every time I'd take a few sips, I'd start to talk, and he'd say, shut up and quit and keep drinking. So he was kind of a comical guy. So I sat there through about three drinks when I was, you know, about, about half drunk. He uh, he reached in his pocket, he pulled out a pen, and he put out a little notepad, and he said, tell me what you, what the grand opening is about without thinking, he said. And I yelled down the hall to my general manager, it was a Harold Parker, and I said, Harold, how many customers do we have on a Friday? And he said, oh, about 4,000, So, which was true back then. So anyway, I looked at my friend, and, and, and I said, does anybody in Lafayette have 4,000 friends? Well, I sure as hell hope I do because we're having a grand opening. And I don't know what they do at Grand Opens other than give away a lot of free stuff. So I'm going to give a free bottle of champagne to the first 4,000 people that show up. <laughs> We're going to give everybody a T-shirt, too. Y'all come out and enjoy the uh, celebration. And we thank you for your continued support. And I just busted out laughing. <laughs> I looked across my desk, and he was writing every word I said. And when he finished, he looked at me, and he said, Perfect. We ain't changing nothing. You gotta, you gotta air that just like you just said it. And I was all about, man, four thousand dollars. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, don't worry about it. I'll get you a deal, you know. So, so he picked up my phone and he called his office to place the order for the champagne. 
and he hung up and we were sitting there talking and everything and he was trying to trying to get me comfortable with the idea and then the phone rings and it's for him so he picks the phone up and he hangs the phone back up laughing his laughing his head off i said what happened what are you laughing what are you laughing about he said the, ta- the, the he said the the uh ceo of taylor wines called the office and wants to know who in the hell in Lafayette's getting married. <laughs> they never sell that much champagne in one order, you know. I know. I was wondering that, right? So did the folks come out? Well, the next day, uh, I bought all of the radio time on every radio station in Lafayette's market from that day until the uh, the, uh, the day of the grand opening. And we aired that commercial. Just constantly, and and the media buy that I the the, the the media buy that I bought was was news in itself. So everybody was talking about this grand opening, and uh, I just felt like if I didn't do something like that, and we opened that day, and 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 all the news cameras were on site, and they showed a decrease in sales in business that that would telegraphed the wrong image you know for so so you know i felt like i had to pull out all stops and make sure we had a good a good turnout that day and as it and as it happened we had cars that were lined up uh about three miles in both directions that day oh my god and and direct traffic or anything like how, how did that work well they um uh, about 20 minutes into the into the day, uh, the entire uh, uh, troop I started massing across the road from us, and uh, I think there were about 14 or 15 of them. I'm not sure. I have to look at my notes on that, but but they all were sitting across the the, the uh, road, and all of a sudden, in unison, they all walked across the street, shoulder to shoulder, like a military operation, and started uh, riding. Uh, uh, traffic vita- uh, uh, citations to all of my customers in line, you know, that were all bogus, but they were just trying to disperse the crowd type thing. So they wrote about 40 tickets, uh, and, and, uh, just ran off all, all the, uh, the, uh, customers that I had. And, uh, I really didn't know what was going to happen that day. You know, I told all my employees, you know, there's a good chance we could all get get thrown in jail today. But right. uh, but but I said, you know, if if y'all if, if y'all don't want to come to work, I'm going to pay you anyway. But if you do come to work, be assured that I'll have enough money on me to bail us out of jail if that happens. So so that was the meeting I had with them the day before. So I put ten thousand dollars in my back pocket and went to work that day. And uh, incidentally, Dolph drove down to to to, uh, to 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 check all this out. He was there with me, so I have pictures of him on the property with all the all the cops and everything. It was a it was a it was a momentous day for me, anyway. But uh, did, did we just send the cops some daiquiris so they'd have some to drink and like <laughs> anything like that? No, uh, it was it was it was total mayhem, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, customers that. That had backed them up on their squad cars, and it, it's a miracle that there wasn't a riot there, you know. But it, it, thankfully, everything was pretty much peaceful. So, 
And so after that, after that transpired, I knew I had to get all those traffic tickets expunged if I wanted to stay in business. So uh, I had to get an attorney to to, to uh, represent me. And I spent all day calling attorneys, and none of them would take the case. Uh, you know, I have a conflict of interest, or you don't have a case. Was I heard that all day. So, so I've just finally decided, you know, I need another angle to, to figure this stuff out. So I just went home, and I just kind of went in my bedroom and turned the lights off and just kind of got in a what I call a zen mode, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of concentrated on the problem and, you know, trying to think of somebody I could call or something. And uh, a, a, a name just kind of started popping in my mind. And I laughed at myself even thinking about it. You know, I mean, and, and I almost talked myself out of even calling the guy. So I finally said, well, you know, I'll call him anyway. It ain't, can't hurt anything. If I don't call him, I'll never know. So I remembered uh, during the Watergate hearings that family members had told me that I was directly related to Sam Irvin, the guy that that uh, oh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. How about that, that prosecuted uh, uh, Nixon. So so I doubt he was retired at the time and living in Morganton, North Carolina. So I, I, I dialed directory census and got his number and called him up. And uh, he answered the phone and uh uh, I introduced myself, uh, David Hugh Irvin, and he paused on the phone and he said, are you our Hugh Irvin's son? And that just shocked me that he knew that. And as it turned out, he was writing a book about our family, so he was familiar with the names. you know. The, but, but anyway, he, um, I, I told him my problem, and off the top of his head, he mentioned a guy named J. Minus Simon from Lafayette. He said, you call J. Minus Simon, and, 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 I, and, and I don't think you're going to have any problems. But he said, as a, a country lawyer in North Carolina, I, I can't do you a nickel's worth of good up here. So I thanked him and so forth. So then I hung that phone up, and I thought, this J. Minus Simon guy must be a real high-powered attorney, you know. So I did some investigative work, and I learned that he had argued 29 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court level and won all of them he was a he was a louisiana legend wow he, he had actually uh sprung uh, uh uh a sitting governor out of the insane asylum oh uh uncle earl yeah yeah he <laughs> wrote uncle earl a letter and he Love said that story yeah so so anyway he he, he was a living legend so i i i got up the next morning went over to his office I was afraid to call him because I felt like he, you know, it's easy to be rejected on a phone call. So I, I went over there and walked in his office, and his lobby was full of uh, clients. And I walked up and told the receptionist who I was, and she immediately walked around and escorted me to his office like they were waiting on me or something. <laughs> you know, so I walked back there and he took the case, and. Uh, as I say, the rest is kind of history, you know. I mean, he he filed that motion the next day, and all hell broke loose. And like yet, it was it was a, it was it was too bizarre for me then. I mean, I stopped doing interviews then because I didn't want to uh, 
I, 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 I really didn't want to interfere with anything he was doing. So, but uh, we went to court and. Uh, yeah, the first thing your lawyer tells you is shut up, don't go on TV. You know, that's uh, not till this is over anyway. Well, well he never told me. I'm sorry? Yeah, repeat yourself, Stephen. Yeah, when are these events? Yeah, my connection or my Wi-Fi is coming from me. When when is this taking place? What's the time from these events? This is your Hey, Stephen, you're kind of breaking up. Why don't you text me in the uh, Zoom chat, and uh, then I'll pass it along to uh, uh, David. So, uh, so you had two things. You had the uh, tape on the tops, and you had this good lawyer. So how did that go when you got to court? Well, uh, the uh, yeah, yeah, he wanted me to bring a uh, you know a, a, a sample of my, my my container to court, and he entered that as uh, as evidence on the on you know in, in court in open court, and uh, it was sort of comical to sit there and look at a white styrofoam cup with with freezer tape on it. And 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 everybody, you know, you, you know that's part of the case. <laughs> I mean, it, it was uh, it was litigated in open court, and the and the judge ruled that it was it it, it was in compliance with the ordinance. It was sealed. Yeah, and 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 that set a precedent in Louisiana that continues to this day. You know. Well, and seriously, you can tell if somebody has opened the lid. You know, they get bent, and especially those little things that you put the straw in. And so, uh, yeah, if you, if it's sealed, it's just like any sealed container, right? Uh, you're just driving yeah. from, and then I, again, I don't drink and drive, but I will take it home while I'm, uh, you know, working on it, <laughs> uh, before I worked on it. But and, and yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I get it. It's, everything. Well, yeah, I was, I was, what was that, Stephen? No, I was just asking. When, so when is all this taking place? I hope you all can hear me this time with this yeah. crummy Wi-Fi connection. Yeah, so when, 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 is this, uh, when is this taking place? Like, is this the 80s or 90s when these events are unfolding? Yeah, this was, uh, let's see. Actually, I've got a, uh, I've got a framed uh, uh front page of the of the Times of Acadiana on my wall in my office here. It, it was uh, August the 5th, 1982. Wow. <laughs> so that didn't take long. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I see that. that that's uh, Judge Sue Fontenot and uh, J. Minus Sema on the front front page of the <laughs> That is cool, man. And uh, so, uh, did you open up a string of these uh, daiquiri shops, or did you just focus on the one? No, I opened. Uh, I opened three more. I opened one in Opelousas. I opened two more in Lafayette, and I opened one on the uh, on the West Bank of New Orleans in Marrero. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I was I, I, I was just so elated with with, with the ones in Lafayette. I mean. I mean, it, it, it's the, the the income was just insane, you know, and I, I just never thought it would end. 
Yeah, surprised you didn't try to open one in Baton Rouge. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sort of biased since I grew up there, but did you ever try to open one in the Baton Rouge area? At all? Yeah, I did. Uh, actually, um, uh, my attorney uh, wanted to go in, in partnership with me for one in Baton Rouge, and uh, I went before the city council there, and uh, the uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving were on the Capitol steps with in a candlelight vigil. Of, you know, uh, 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 you know, trying to get the legislatures to, to, uh, you know, put me out of business. And, and there was a lot of vocal opposition in that council meeting. Uh, so I went back and talked with my attorney and I, I told him it's gonna, it's gonna take a lot of his legal time, you know, to, for us to be able to operate in Baton Rouge. And, uh, all things considered, you know, we decided just to go against it because, uh, they were going to fight us tooth and nail every step of the way there in Baton Rouge. Yeah, that's the state capital, so they're going to really focus. And again, you're not telling people to drink and drive uh, any more than if you sell them a you know bottle of vodka or some wine or whatever. Um, you know, it's still our responsibility to go home and drink it there. Where are we going to go to the party? I like to walk around the French Quarter with it because it. I studied a little bit about ice and get really cold water, 32 degrees and warm it up a degree. And if you get a piece of ice that's 32 degrees and warm it up to a degree, it takes eight times as much energy. We're just saying it's eight times as uh, efficient in cooling you down as just drinking plain cold water. So ice is really, yeah, it's kind of an important thing in a place like Louisiana. Well, the thing about the machines that, 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 that's kind of unique is that they, they produce a very fine grained, uh, ice crystal that, right. that, that you can't replicate in, in a blender or anything. No. And, and those fine ice crystals, uh, you know, melt really fast in your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, when you drink a frozen drink, it has to melt before you swallow it. Right. In your mouth. And those those fine crystals they melt almost instantly, you know, when, when you're drinking them. So, so it, it's it, it, you end up with a product that that a bar really can't make, you know. So, yeah. well, again, you know, it's really uh, this hot hot weather we're having. Uh, it really cools you down, and nothing cools you down quite like ice, you know. So, um, whether it's a soft drink like an icy or a Slurpee or or the Dactray, they, um, they're good in weather like this. And, uh, yeah. So I've seen we've been going about an hour. Are there any other things you'd like to talk about before, um, before we get off the, uh, the, uh, the interview? Well, I'll just say that, uh, uh, you know, w- what all I did was, uh, like I said, I was a 25 year old kid, but, uh, you know, the, the people that really influenced me in my, in my endeavors were, uh, you know, Dolph's family and my, and my yeah. family. Um, and, uh, my late grandfather always told me, he said, uh, uh, the only opinion that really matters is the one you have yourself. So whatever you do in life, if people laugh at you, don't worry about it. You just worry <laughs> about what you think about yourself. So well, but I literally laughed out of city hall. I was laughed out of the state uh, uh, capital. I was laughed out of 
Rustin, pretty much. I mean, oh, everybody's right, yeah. same. <laughs> Who, who's surprised, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody well, thought. And, and, and to this day, you know, some of my fraternity brothers that are honest with me, you know, they all say the same thing. You know, you're the least likely person we ever thought would ever do anything. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, uh, you know, Dolph isn't a whole lot older than us. You know, he was uh, kind of the guy that was making this. For our folks that are uh, listening at home and don't remember our uh, podcast a couple of years ago, I'm going to uh, show you a picture of uh, us visiting Dolph one day. And uh, the, the, the vehicle behind him is a Rolls Royce. <laughs> so when he showed us his Rolls Royce, I said, well, Pardon me, do you have any gray poupon? And he he, uh, he came out with this gray poupon and that shitting and grin. And uh, that was my favorite moment for the whole the whole project. I, you know, I didn't know I would ever get to see somebody with gray poupon in their Rolls Royce. But and you helped put that Rolls Royce there and the gray poupon because uh, you're the guy that kind of figured out the the thing that would take it to the next level. Well, well, he's 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 helped me a lot over the years. His family has, and uh, and you know, any story that I have about anything I did, it has to include their family as well. You know, because I, 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 it's really important to me that the story's accurate and that you know people hear the right thing. There's been so many misquotes over the years. Right. I've been in so many times, and and you know, so many writers have just kind of gone off the deep in on some issues and kind of thing. And uh, it probably doesn't matter to anybody but me, but I just like it to be, you know, the real story. Well, I'm sure sure you're very good for each other. Like, you know, you're like, uh, you know, the the guy out there, they couldn't have bought. Imagine trying to pay for the kind of advertising uh, that you got them for free. (laughs) Here are the... Frozen yeah. batteries. And for everybody that says, oh, that's outrageous, there's uh, somebody else saying, ooh, that looks kind of tasty. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, and they start ordering, you know, a dozen machines instead of two. So, because you've got these little daiquiri shops opening up all over. Everybody back in the day, you know, thought that I was doing these, these uh, television interviews with these reporters for publicity. But the thing is, if I didn't, if, if, if I didn't do the interviews, they were going to report on it anyway. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I didn't need advertising because we had more customers than we could uh, service anyway. And right. uh, at, at the height of it, we were we were around we were averaging around four to six thousand uh, uh, car uh, uh, customers a day. And I didn't know it at the time, but one of the reporters explained to me that that's that that, that equates to something around five to seven percent of the population of the city every day. Right. Well, and so that that gives you an idea of how. I mean, well, we had customers driving in from 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 all over because we were the only only ones. You know, we. We had regular customers from New Orleans driving to Lafayette to buy a daiquiri. If you can imagine that. So yes, uh, it's really a, a very 
I'd say it is kind of a tech story because, uh, you know, everybody involved with this seems to have had some touch, uh, you know, being with tech. But, yeah, and so you had to get on the TV yourself or you had to just be the other person. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I doubt that all the bars in Lafayette could fit 4,000 people in them at once. <laughs> like uh, not just any bar, but all of it. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I did a. A, a time and motion study and uh and you know what, what i could make what, what would be the the absolute maximum the store could could, could do and it, it it was hitting those numbers on a regular basis back then and um the, the other problem i had was uh, uh the, the vendors in town thought that i my, my business would be closed any day so they were reluctant to bring in the inventories that i needed you know, so right. so uh, many times I would uh, uh, I, I'd call a liquor distributor and just and just buy all the the white rum they had. You know, we were buying the you know the the, the moderately priced rum. You know, we weren't buying Bacardi or anything. But right, right. But, I mean, I mean, I would just buy 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 all their inventory. We, we had a uh, I had leased a warehouse just to just to store the inventory. <laughs> This store running. Oh my goodness! I, that. I had almost as much square footage and and dumpster space as I did building. <laughs> so, so when when I opened the store, uh, I, I, I miscalculated my storage needs. So, so we had to stack inventory outside the building oh my and rotate building as as we we, we 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 cleared up space inside the building. And at night we'd have to just stack it all back in the building. It was all the way to the rafters every night. Oh my goodness! It, it was it was the most bizarre thing. You <laughs> could have, I mean, I had no idea that uh, that it would take off like it did. I mean, I mean, we had uh, 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 cashiers that were that were doing six or seven hundred dollars in tips every night. You know, Dude, you didn't have any trouble getting people to work for you. <laughs> no, it was that was a uh, that was a badge of honor kind of thing. I mean, you know, for a young kid uh, that was socially active, you you worked at the Dodger factory, you get to meet everybody in town every day. You know. <laughs> well, so, I'm you know, thinking too what what you've done, and we haven't even said this. This was a real revolution in in in, in terms of manufacturing the product, which you kind of you know innovated on what Dolph you know, and his family had done, but then your my mom and my uncle too, by that, by the same token, were old bankers. And so you were using kind of a model of delivering a, in this case, a product, or in their case, more of a service, but you're delivering a product to them by using drive-through technology and drive, you know, the drive-through mechanism, like in a drive-in window at a bank. Yeah. And yeah, then, sure. then you're adding to that your own innovations. I mean, it's, it's uniting a lot of different, you know, technologies and a lot of different business models together to create something that's really entirely new. Yeah, they had McDonald's drive-through and uh, Burger King, but I doubt that they had made a alcohol drive-through of any kind at that point. And it was barred from banking again. I mean, my uncle was really wilded out when they did that. He was an old bank president here in Ruston, in fact. And he was really kind of I don't know. I, I guess he was flattered in his way, but when when McDonald's, Burger King, uh, later on Wendy's when they and Dairy Queen also when they began to put in drive-through, you know, models for selling their products, 
my uncle thought, you know, that is pretty ingenious. <laughs> I mean, he said that one time. It's pretty ingenious. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the way banking was being done, you know, or it's one of the ways banking was being done. Yeah. Right. Well, well, the the biggest problem I had was I had no friends in Lafayette in the uh, in, in the uh, business community. The bar the bar owners hated me. That uh, <laughs> <Death>, man. <laughs> they 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 literally hated me. They got so tired of people walking in with white styrofoam cups that, that just about every bar in Lafayette had a sign outside that said no white no styrofoam cups allowed. Right. Was, yeah. Place in town selling drinks in a in a styrofoam cup, you know. So, yeah, you know, if somebody walks in with a daiquiri and just takes up space in their bar, you know. Right, right, yeah. It was, they need somebody so to you sell it in a plastic cup, but that would be the shell, and the styrofoam would be the, the filler <laughs> and sidestep what their policy was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been great. I just love this conversation. I'm so glad I uh, I picked up on that forestry student <laughs> and said, oh, that's got to be, you know, he, he might, I, we were in school at the same time. We, we might have sat in the same class at some point. Yeah, we probably did. Uh, I, I, have, I know a lot of people in Ruston, uh, 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 the Lewis family. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my in-laws. That's my cousin. It's one of their lineal grandchildren. Yeah, where my cousins are. Yeah. Oh, really? So what yeah. fraternity yeah, his, were his, you his in? His grandma was one of the Lewis great-grandchildren, I think. So what fraternity were you in when you were at Tech? I, I, I was a, I was, I was a, uh, a KA. Okay. I know them. So Y'all might know Robert Temple. He was in the banking business. He still lives in Ruston. Uh, uh, Sammy Thomas. Oh yeah, I went. I grew up with Sammy. Uh, he's calling himself Sam these days, and he's really yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, he's in Nashville now. So, I, 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 he sends emails to me about every day. <laughs> well, thank you so much, David, and best of uh, best wishes for the future and. You know, thank you for making uh, the frozen daiquiri a part of my life. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I enjoyed the interview. It was uh, it was it was really fun, and uh, and, and I I did take a look at y'all's site. It's really really good. I'm glad to see y'all well, doing this. Thanks. It, it is well, so fun. You. you know, especially the the podcast. It's just we have uh, met so many great people over the last ten years of the podcast. So. Well, you take care. Well, thank you. Yeah, again. thank you for joining. Bye. 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 We want to thank David for uh, coming on our podcast, and we will mention that uh, we have an excerpt of his memoir up on our um, website now. So just look up I R V I N. Is that right? E R V I N. E R V I N. E R V I N. And uh, you'll find. Uh, maybe a it might be a full chapter altogether. Uh, he's also got some reminiscences about New Orleans. Uh, so yeah, it's a good read and uh, fun, and you know, get a little more information. But certainly, we we thank David for coming on our podcast, and um, he was a, a really great guest. And um, 
And he was good Maybe at harassing the man, you know. He really <laughs> gave it to the man. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. We certainly do want to thank David for uh, joining us this week. And uh, if you're out and about any time and you get a, a drive-through daiquiri any place, well, think of Dave Irwin because this again is his creation. As is the various kinds of, or as are the, the various kinds of frozen drinks that uh, Dolph Williams' mother originally developed and, and Dolph continued. So again, thanks, uh, Dave, for joining us this week. We also want to thank all of you. Uh, we ask you to drive safely and then come back and join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.